Hi, this is Stacy, the Baby Maker Robert. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. Please go to biocriticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line all the way from Oslo is Dr. Hogne Vik, who serves as the Chief Medical Officer with Natto Pharma ASA. A physician by education, he has a long and successful track record in both the pharmaceutical and dietary supplement industries. Prior to joining Natto Pharma, Dr. Vik was the driving force behind the documentation program securing the current position of superb acryl oil developed and manufactured by Acabio Marine Antarctic. He was also one of the key executives in the management team of Pronova Biopharma, securing the US and Japanese market entrances of Omacor or Lavaza, and was uh, instrumental in bringing tonalin, that's the conjugated linoleic acid, to the European and US markets as part of the natural ASA. Additionally, as Global Vice President of Production Development with NICOMED, Dr. Vic was one of the main forces behind the development and market entrance of Vizipak. Welcome, Hogne. Thank you very much, and thank you for this opportunity to talk with you and also go through some of the things I'm really burning for when you come to human health. Now, we'll be talking about Natto Pharma's vitamin K2, MK7. And I've long been impressed by the quality of nutraceuticals from Scandinavian countries, um, particularly, you know, things like fish oil, but there's a, a multitude of, of others, including omega-7, for instance. Could you take our listeners through your education and what attracted you first to work with companies like Acabio Marine, Pronova, and finally with Natto Pharma? Yes, I will. Uh, my background is that... Uh I'm born into a family where my father is a physician, mm. and uh, also I have uh, a brother and sister working in the healthcare system. So from my very beginning, I was very dedicated that I had to do something within healthcare and the healthcare system. So I started out as a normal, interested uh, young guy with a medical student and uh, made a lot of research within allergy and in the beginning was dedicated to work within internal medicine with some advanced thing in medicine. And uh, through this, I made a lot of papers within uh, basic uh, immunology things and also learned a lot about what is the starting point for a lot of diseases. Yeah. So uh, during my career, I ended up to uh, in one point of time to be the CEO of the Norwegian Food Research Institute. 
And uh, in that area, we really identified that uh, it's not only to treat diseases that uh, is important, but also to prevent diseases to develop. And I think uh, this was a real waker for me in that way that then I I saw that by working with the good uh, food, good diets, and also working with dietary supplements was perhaps uh, an even more important thing for a physician to do than just to treat people that already had developed diseases. Now, I've spoken about this sort of subject with Dr. Mark Donoghue, an Australian integrative physician, um, time and again about how were you accepted or not accepted by your orthodox family members in the medical profession? Oh, that's a very interesting question <laughs> because I, <laughs> I said strongly that uh, to go into dietary supplements and uh, this kind of preventive medicine was not the highest uh, ranked part of uh, the medical arena. Yeah. So just as you said, it was a lot of skepticism. Yeah. But I had a lot of uh, advantage through my background because uh, at least locally in Norway, people were aware of what I've been doing. So therefore, it couldn't be totally out of rank right. if I was focusing on these issues. <laughs> yeah. So, so are Scandinavian people more accepting of the therapeutic actions and efficacy of natural medicines? I think that uh, in Norway, we, we are a lot of fun of, uh, of hiking, physical activity, and uh, like outdoors life. Yeah. And, uh, and through that, we also realize that it's a big advantage to have a healthy body. And uh, we have the last uh, 30, 40 years been very well uh, focused on what the body needs not to be deficient in important vitamins and minerals. I also have to add that a part of the normal Norwegian diet has been cod liver oil yeah. from very, very long time back. Yeah. And, uh, and that was uh, combined with it so little sun, so short summers in Norway, that vitamin D was uh, a deficiency uh, element. So through cod liver oil, I expect, I uh, realized uh, during my childhood that we started every morning with a quite high dosage of cod liver oil mixed up with milk in order to get the sufficient of vitamin D. Yummy. And I think some of this kind of uh, experience is also a part of the daily life and of a rather positive uh, approach towards dietary supplements in Norway. You know, the, you're bringing back memories from my childhood. I can still remember my father giving me, I don't know if you'd know this supplement, in Australia we call it Hypol, and it's cod liver oil, a very milky-looking emulsion. And um, I actually mm-hmm. st- I actually started to like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> so when you talk about the, the acceptance and the use of, of appreciable dosages of oral intake of vitamin D, um, it reminds me of the simplistic approach we have. Um, same with vitamin D. As for vitamin K, you know, like vitamin D is only for bones. So in my nursing, it taught me that vitamin K was only for blood clotting. Um, but I'm getting that vitamin K or the different isomers of it are just, there's a lot more that it can do, correct? That's correct. And uh, if I'm allowed to, to take a little of the history for vitamin K, mm. uh, the, the whole K letter is, of course, associated with coagulation. Coagulation, yeah. So it was the Danish biochemist, Henrik Dam, that in 1929 identified vitamin K, that later has been mentioned, vitamin K1, when he saw that a lot of chickens had problems with bleeding when they were bred. So, so therefore, he started to identify that molecule. 
and together with an U.S. Uh, researcher, Edward Adelberg Doisy, uh, that formed the structure of this vitamin K in 1941. They were given the Nobel Prize already in 1943. So that is why it's called vitamin K. Right. But as you said, then later on, uh, and I will say that uh, it's from the 70s, that they also identified small variation, or at least variation in the molecule of vitamin K1, that has been a family of what we call molecule uh, vitamin K2. And there we have, uh, depending upon the size of the the side chain, what we call mechanomenokinones from MK3, 4, 7, 8, 9. And uh, these molecules have different biological functions in the body. If I come back to what you say, that uh, then it seems to be K2 mainly associated with bone, mm-hmm. uh, that's correct. Because the first uh, uh, biological research w- was identified that uh, this MK7, mm-hmm. vitamin K2, with the seven uh, uh, carbons in the side chain, yeah. that has a very important uh, activation factor for, for osteocalcin that again is important for the osteoblast to build bone and uh, generate calcium within bone. Right. So I guess that was the starting point. And then everybody thinks that uh, K2 is only for bone. So that's the first research was actually looking at vitamin K in bone, and that's it. Yeah, and, and, and the reason for that, uh, again, is that uh, when, uh, when uh, the work some kind of different diets in, in Japan. Yeah. And they identified uh, in Japan that uh, people uh, having uh, fermented soya beans for lunch when they were working out in the fields, they seems to have less uh, frequency of fractions uh, compared to people in, in uh, Japan where they had another kind of, uh, of diet. We go now quite long back in the history. And then when they started this kind of, of research uh, and saw this difference, they, they made some analytical work on this uh, diet. Mm. And in that diet, they identified uh, MK7. So that is why we then really got some kind of scientific evidence that this vitamin K2 had an impact to reduce fraction. And later on, we understood more of the mechanisms behind it. Right. So when you mentioned before about there's vitamin K2 and then there's the the um, menaquinone derivatives, and you're talking about MK7, which is seven carbon atoms. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's uh, the side chain. Is yeah. Seven uh, carbon atoms. Yeah. Mm. So that affects, obviously, its actions, but does that restrict the actions to MK7, or can your body metabolize it? Uh, it does not at all restrict it only to that starting molecule because the body will then, it's, all, it's also a dynamic between uh, the MK4 molecule, MK7 molecule. But what has been uh, the main argument to use MK7 as you vitamin K2 uh, additive is that the half size in circulation of MK7 is much longer than uh, vitamin K1 and MK4. Right. So also the biological function of MK7 is not that it works once and then it's finished and has to be rebuilt again. It's more like an engine, that you have one facilitation of an MK7 for a carboxylation process, and when that is finished, you start over again. So it then the same molecule would give a lot of uh, 
carboxylation reactions in the body. I see. So that means if you have a, a double or five times longer half-life, that also have a tremendous impact on the biological function, not only in, in osteoblast, but in several other cells in the body. And, and what sort of actions are we talking about here? Obviously not just bone. No, that's true. So uh, the, what we call it the headline, where we have most scientific evidence, is uh, uh, as a, part, a major part to understand what we call the calcium paradox. Uh, and here is one of the areas I'm really burning for, <laughs> because uh, we see that uh, uh, to lose bone strength and develop osteoporosis seems to be a more and more health problem all over the world as we grow older as a population. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pharmaceutical industry and all over the world, one has said, aha, that is because you are lacking calcium in your diet. So then please take more calcium. And people have done that. But uh, Hasn't fact, it doesn't work. It doesn't work if you don't take uh, more or sufficient uh, facilitators that will place the calcium in the right places. Yeah. So that means that we need vitamin D, vitamin D3, extremely important to, to have the best bone metabolism. But also vitamin K2 is uh, fundamental to make the osteoblast to build bone. So therefore, in the calcium paradox, we say, aha, you need K2 to do this, to build sufficient bone matrix. But also, you need vitamin K2 to secure that you don't load up epithelium cells, especially inside your arteries with calcium. Because uh, the secret is that if you have too much calcium in the body, it is a problem for the body to get rid of it. And therefore, instead of uh, getting rid of it in normal ways, it's start to load up calcium where you don't need it. Yeah. And when you come to arterial calcification, if you have too little K2, you will then end up to, to have a, a more increased and more severe uh, calcium uh, deposition within the arteries, and that will again give cardiovascular diseases. So I'm imagining that um, vitamin K2, MK7, must work to, to dampen inflammation in some way. Because to me, calcium is the, like the messenger that gets shot <laughs> some of the time. And that yeah, calcium yeah, is really yeah. just going to places to, of infection to, to, in a vain attempt, if you like, to help the body wall off infection or, or sorry, for in- inflammation. Is that right? And the vitamin mm-hmm. K dampens that? Yeah, yeah and, the, and that, that is... Uh now I've been talking about some of the endpoints we can measure. As you say, that also calcium is a part of the end stage uh, inflammation process when yeah. you try to repair things. Yeah. It's also shown in, uh, but that is more in in vitro uh, studies and in animal models that uh, K2 in itself has an anti-inflammatory effect. So then you come into the whole bunch of biological parameters to looking into inflammation or how to inhibit inflammation. And I would say that K2 so far is identified as a as a weak or to middle strong anti-inflammatory agent. But again, if you combine this, as we talked a little about omega-3, that yeah. definitely has anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah. And you see that if you then have enough of these kind of substances in your daily diet, will make the necessary repairment or improve your pro-inflammatory condition to a more neutral uh, situation, uh, that will be very important to stay healthy. So that is why I think that when you will end up to learn and have a simplified uh, picture of K2 in the future, 
they would say, aha, it was this anti-inflammatory effect that was the main thing, and that again was very important for the to resolve some of the major elements with the calcium uh, problem. But inflammation is a, a very broad brush. You know, when we're thinking, talking about fish oils, then we're looking at sort of an icosanoid action and you've got other actions like, you know, tumor necrosing factor and the various interleukins. So in what ways or way, what way does um, vitamin K2, MK7 act as an anti-inflammatory? What, what's the biochemical pathway there? Yeah, here I guess it's a lot uh, of, uh, of uh, answers we do not have yet. So uh, we have uh, been measuring, just as you say, interleukins. We have been measuring a lot of other uh, activation of white blood cells and so on. So, so so far, we we are just reporting in our research uh, collaboration that some of these parameters are enhanced, inhibited, and so on. But I don't have the full picture of how the real entrance and, and major uh, work, uh, action uh, is. The major thing for us now, and uh, and uh, since Natto Pharma is more a clinical focused company, also trying to sell this vitamin K2 as a commercial product, we are more focused on the more end stage uh, observation in clinical trials. Gotcha. But really, we are, are supporting uh, mechanistic studies as well, and hopefully, we will have a better understanding when you come a few more years into the future. Gotcha. Um- so when I was first researching MK7, um, I, I kept on coming up with this matrix GLA protein or MGP, and that seemed to be um, purported or touted as the the way in which it had the control of the various actions. Is that right? Am I on the right track there, or is that? Yeah, right? uh, MGP matrix GLA protein is uh, one uh, that is associated mostly. With the effects in the in the arteries. So then we are talking right. about when you have a measurement for how we can inhibit calcification of arteries. MGP has been identified as the best documented marker. Yeah. And uh, and if you allow me to talk a little of that, is that uh, osteocalcin, as we talked about for bone, was very long seen as one and dominating marker for how you develop osteoporosis. MGP has now been uh, investigated for more than uh, 10 years. And again, the major research for this has been done in Maastricht in uh, the Netherlands. Yeah. And uh, and now it has been demonstrated very strong correlation that uh, if you have uh, a high percentage of uh, carboxylated uh, MGP, mm-hmm. then you, uh, your uh, arterial status is uh, better. You have more flexible uh, arteries, less uh, stiff arteries, yeah. and therefore more physiological arteries. And uh, I guess that uh, just now, uh, Natu Pharma is uh, working very close with another company located in U.S. Immune Diagnostic Systems, where they know uh, are about to have a launch of uh, carboxylation or MGP as an indicator for your blood vessel status. Gotcha. Having said that, uh, we know that. Uh, K2 do not only uh, have impact on these two proteins. Uh, I just read a paper saying that at least 19 different uh, biomarkers of proteins are facilitated or activated by uh, vitamin K, 
where NK7 is the most important uh, marker. Wow. And then we are moving into a lot of different uh, important physiological processes. And uh, it's, uh, but for, for, to have the educational point of view, let's so far stay that we have a lot of knowledge and a lot of clinical evidence that uh, for osteocalcin and matrix protein, we have a very good story. And the other more than 17 stories that we have to, they have even better clinical documentation before we can come up with statements that really can change people's lives. Okay, so when you're talking about the association between higher levels of matrix GLA protein, forgive my pronunciation, I said GLA, which is erroneous. Yeah, so matrix okay. GLA protein. I think you are right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> matrix GLA protein. So when you're talking about that association of higher levels of matrix GLA protein or MGP and having higher levels of elasticity, if you like, of the coronary artery, um, mm-hmm. that, it, that's the Rotterdam study, is that correct? Uh, you're all right, yeah. But uh, in the Rotterdam study, that was more an epidemiologic uh, observation. Yeah. So they were just looking into people's diets, yeah. and they asked, "What are you eating every day?" And then they came up with uh, the the rather uh, extraordinary observation that uh, by following people for eight years, they said that if you have less than 22 microgram. Uh, MK7 in your diet and compare that group to uh, to people that had more than 36 microgram uh, MK7 in the diet, it was a great difference in uh, both uh, uh, events of cardiovascular diseases, of uh, cardiovascular uh, death and total mortality. So the differences were 50%. Wow. Just uh, uh, when you made statistics on this single component. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, and this observation made that that, uh, that was just measurement of MK7 in the diet that people claimed to have. And you know, from all that kind of research we have, people are not very specific when you come to memory of what you are eating. So that was the, one of the major starting points where we really made an intervention study with uh, MK7. And then uh, this, this study, I will not, uh, I could talk about it for hours, but I will try to do it short. <laughs> but that was a study sponsored by Nato Pharma, where we had two groups of postmenopausal women. That means after the menstruation had stopped. So they were in the age when they were recruited, uh, around 55 years of age. So uh, 120 took 180 microgram MK7 every day for three years, and the other group took uh, placebo. Uh, and I've run a lot of clinical trials within the pharmaceutical industry in my past life. So this time we had a compliance of 92.6%. Wow. And that means that uh, that is extremely high percentage yeah. and gives also... Uh, uh, very high confidence to the clinical data, even if the groups are not that uh, impressive. Right. So what we saw then in these two groups after three years was that uh, for the cardiovascular part, we, we saw that by using the measurement pulse rate velocity, that in fact vessels uh, how stiff your arteries are, because uh, if you have an ultrasound signal, it will go much faster along uh, an artery if it's stiff compared to if it is more elastic or yeah. physiological. Yeah. So what we saw in uh, just for that parameter in this study 
was that the pulse wave velocities uh, decreased in the MK7 group, meaning that after three years, the arteries measured were less stiff, more physiologic after three years. And in the placebo group, we had the gradually increased increasing uh, stiffness. Yeah. So, so this is uh, this is uh, I've never seen something like that before. So it just says that K2 or MK7 is extremely important for your blood vessels to stay healthy and uh, and get rid of this calcification. And as I previously talked about, that uh, calcium seems to be loaded up or stored in the arteries if you have too much of it. So that that was you've actually taken the words out of my mouth because I was going to ask about intervention studies. So thank you for that. That's extremely impressive. One of my questions from that is: uh, Is it to say that? Uh, vitamin K2, MK7 can regress, uh, say, coronary artery plaques, the calcification. Can it actually regress plaques or can it just stabilize an existing plaque and, um, you know, help the elasticity? Uh, I would very, you see, I'm uh, hesitating a little now because I would very much like to say, yes, it can reverse plaques. But where we have the scientific evidence is that we inhibit the calcification. So even if we have improved this uh, uh, arterial stiffness, uh, there might be other elements as well, uh, not not only calcium, that uh, yeah. uh, improves this post velocity thing. Sure. So, so therefore, uh, it's sure that we have the very clear uh, documentation that as a dietary supplement to prevent development of calcification, there I will... Uh, home free say yes we have data for that yeah when you come to the you very uh, intriguing question <laughs> uh, if that can also be a drug then i have to say we i strongly believe that this uh, this is uh, more than uh, uh, 50% sure but then we need to come into the mutation program and not to pharma is working on that because I believe that this in the future might be a drug as well yeah. and uh, and even reverse uh, damaged arteries. Wow. But, uh, then time has to show and money has to be offered to do that kind of work. Yeah. So we can't say that at the stage, but we're very excited. What do they say? Um, cautiously optimistic. Is that the words? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that, that's a good word. And, and you, you put it on. So that's fine. <laughs> so, so what does the anti-inflammatory effects of MK7 um, mean for other inflammatory-based diseases, not just cardiovascular-related diseases? And what I'm thinking here is, what about things like um, uh, Crohn's, where, say, a, a measure of calprotectin is used mm. to look at uh, general mm-hmm. inflammation? Mm-hmm. I, again... Uh, I think that uh, when we are extremely excited about uh, natural compounds and, uh, and the potential very positive physiological effects all over the area, uh, we, we also must be a little modest to say that uh, vitamin K2 is the more, uh, uh, not the, the, the biggest or most effective anti-inflammatory agent, but it has some effects. Yeah. So I think that for, for people that go with chronic inflammatory processes, as they do with inflammatory bowel diseases, uh, to have a, a, a base level concentration of K2 might uh, uh, yeah, reduce the clinical symptoms of the disease. But again, then we need to run studies on that. I, I know also when you come to for omega-3 products, it will be the same. It's not the anti-inflammatory effect 
uh, for diseases that is a major effect of the compound, but still it can participate and be not only a cofactor, but right. a complementary element that can make the body itself more able to take care of a disease without using expensive and rather challenging drugs too uh, big part of, uh, of the time. I'm, I'm going to concentrate on drug interactions um, towards the end of this podcast, but because um, I think it, it's on the tip of the of, our, of all of our tongues about how does this work with drugs. But first, uh, what about the dose of MK7? You mentioned 120 to 180 micrograms in the Rotterdam study, but what about other conditions? Is there a, a wide variation of dose or do you tend to keep it quite tight? Uh, for what we have been doing is to to monitor uh, what is the the dosage of MK7 needed to have a stable activated level of osteocalcium mm-hmm. that has been used as the indicator when we did the, the dose ranging studies yep. before picking the relevant dose for over clinical three year study. So then we saw that uh, when we uh, increased uh, the dosage of MK7 you ended up to say that 180 gave uh, around 80% of uh, carboxylation of osteocalcin. If you double the dosage to 360, then uh, it was about the same amount of activation. So that is uh, why we ended up with this 180 microgram. So for for a healthy population that should inhibit uh, that kind of uh, processes that we are talking about, and that seems to be a rational uh, uh, dosage. When we have gone into some proof-of-concept studies, and here we are working with patients just to see if we can reverse some kind of uh, effects that uh, is still on the pilot part, but we have been working with uh, very enthusiastic uh, physicians that know that, for example, people on uh, hemodialysis with kidney deficiency, they tend to die, a lot of them, not because of the kidney disease, but because of uh, coronary artery diseases. Mm-hmm. So in these kind of uh, of uh, patients, you have a death rate up to 30 to 40% per year because uh, the arteries are so heavily yep. damaged during this situation. Mm-hmm. So there we, in collaboration with some physician in Belgium, Brugge, have seen that you really uh, uh, prolong life for these patients and then we have had higher dosages per day. We have used up to 500 microgram per day, yep. trying to uh, inhibit further calcification of arteries. So this, this just points to the fact that if you are going into patients, and in patients with very bad, it might be both bone status and uh, arterial, arterial status, you might uh, increase the dosage from uh, 180. But again, these data uh, points to the future when we have more knowledge of how this uh, MK7 works in patients. But if nothing else, that shows um, quite a, a degree of safety. I mean, that's more than double the um, the yeah. upper dose in CVT, so CVD. So that shows a wide margin of safety. What would be the highest dose that you'd go to? I, I, I seem yeah. to recall something like 1,800 micrograms. Is that right, or am I way off the scale? Yeah, yeah and, and yeah, and. Uh, Sorry, I didn't quite pick up your, your question around safety, but, oh, uh, but that I can do. Because 
Right, yeah, yeah, I know I understand. Because, yep. because for, for safety reasons, when when I talked about the history from uh, from Japan, mm-hmm. then uh, then uh, when when people there took their their, their diet, the lunch with this fermented uh, soya beans, then we know that they didn't only digest uh, a few hundred microgram of uh, NK7, they digested uh, up to more than one thousand microgram per day. And uh, and uh, we have had no reports from the, from these uh, areas on uh, on uh, adverse events or any negative things of health. So in fact, we have a whole history of this old-fashioned, very special uh, course that has said us that uh, we tolerate human beings tolerate a lot of this. And when we have looked into interactions. Can I take that uh, issue now? Yes, with other yes. other drugs. Yes, yeah, because then then we see that if if uh, if drugs have the same receptor for for action as vitamin K two or MK seven, then it might have some negative uh, uh, effects. But the only uh, drugs we are aware of that have the same kind of uh, of uh, receptor point is uh, one specific group of anticoagulants. And that is more warfarin, coumarin, and that group of, of drugs. Yeah. And that these drugs, they have been used uh, in the past for anticoagulant treatment, especially for people with arterial fibrillation or some other tendencies to higher uh, coagulation activity. But again, this is one of my other big uh, passions. You should replace all these old fashioned uh, red, toxic, poisoned, uh, awful compounds with new and more modern anticoagulants. Because uh, we know from the basic research and other things that warfarin in itself seems to be a facilitator to increase arterial calcification. But anyhow, the, hmm. the medical environment, they are using too much of warfarin and coumarin. And just for these patients, if they then use K2 as well, they need to monitor the right dosage of warfarin uh, coumarin Again, if they start off with K2, yeah. it's not at all forbidden to combine it, but you will have a new uh, target uh, value and intake that needs to be monitored by your physician. And that that so goes for any that, uh, yes, that right. goes for any drug that you start or any any um, treatment that you start with warfarin, doesn't it? Yes, it, it does. But that is so. That is why we we always say if you go on warfarin or coumarin, then talk to your doctor if you want to to use K2. And, uh, but for all other anticoagulants, we have no knowledge that there is an interaction, and we neither have uh, got any kind of safety uh, reports or adverse events combining this with other drugs. I remember seeing a paper, glancing at a paper, forgive me, I didn't read it, um, and it was regarding how vitamin K2, MK7, actually helped to stabilize warfarin, but I don't know what dose was used in that study. Any ideas you can give our listeners? Yes, I can, because uh, we have had uh, communication with a group in in UK where they have been uh, working with anticoagulants for a very long time. And then in these studies so far, they had used vitamin K1 and said that if you have a stable uh, level of K1 in the circulation, then you will also have a more stable INR values for mm-hmm. your warfarin treatment. Uh, and uh, based on that logic, it should be even better to to have vitamin K2 or MK7 because then we know that the half-life is longer and you should even uh, more easily have a similar 
stable level. So within this area, because now we are touching upon an extremely important area for, for our future research, we would also like to, to see how the, for the first thing that the K2 level will have an impact on the normal coagulation level. And even if that can also be it more easy for also the modern anticoagulant yeah. to give a stable value all over the place. Yeah, that'd be very interesting because that's a real issue with the with the the newer generation, the the um, dabigatran and and other drugs. Um, there was some there was some sort of um, talk in the me- medical literature looking at even you know going back to warfarin because they were unhappy with the results. Well, that has also been because some of the new anticoagulants, they do not have what they call antidote. So yeah, if you yes. then are, have a too high level, it is a problem to stop the, the bleeding. So I guess this is also an area where you can combine the new anticoagulants with, uh, with, uh, with K2, and then you don't need an antidote, but you need then, uh, then to have uh, more understanding of the total vitamin K2 effects in the body. Yeah, so it might actually help to make these, you know, the Pradaxas and, and other drugs um, more safe as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, let's see. That might, might be future, future data. Are there any caveats? Are there any cautions that we really need to be concerned about, apart from, you know, high-dose vitamin K with warfarin without stabilizing it first stabilizing your INR first are there any caveats of therapy so so from my perspective and what I've been uh, learned about K2 and I've been involved with this molecule since 2001 Mm. I'm not aware of anything else so uh, so uh, but of course if if new data are generated we will uh, we will look into it from uh, over perspective and and really try to understand the mechanisms but just know I see very, very uh, small reasons that that would pop up. I, I guess the the safety sort of um, uh, the safety reassurance comes from the unusually high uh, intake from that Japanese diet contain, uh, ingesting natto. When you said there were a thousand micrograms mm-hmm. per day, I mean that would have been long term. It wouldn't have been you know just in winter or something. Yeah, that was that was long term, mm-hmm. and that is also one of the major. Uh, stories we have been telling when we have uh, got the, the product approved as novel food in Europe for the for the grass generally uh, accepted as safe in US. So then uh, over over description over the previous use of uh, natto in Japan has been accepted as a as a good safety story, taking away a lot of the concerns from the. Uh, official committees evaluated uh, MK7 as a dietary supplement. So th- there's also th- there's the M- vitamin K2 MK7 molecule, uh, which is MenaQ from Natto Pharma. There's also some MK4 supplements out there. Is there any difference with in the supplements with regards to say stability or their actions? Uh, when you come to MK4, that is uh, that is a molecule that. Uh, has been approved as drug in uh, in Japan, mm-hmm. and has been tried to be sold as a drug in Japan with a modest uh, and small success. Mm. Uh, again, when you compare the MK4 molecule and MK7, I would say that the effect seems to be about the same, but that uh, MK4 with a very reduced uh, half-life compared to MK7 need to be taken in milligram dosages compared to microgram dosages. At right. least they need much higher dosages to get the same effect. Yeah. So that is one of, uh, of the reasons why MK7 
uh, as is more efficient and also more stable as a molecule in the body. And uh, when you come to the, the drugs or the, the pills, well, I guess it's about the same stability of the of the two products. So, what's next on the horizon in the in the re, in the way of research for Nato Pharma? Is there anything that you can allow our listeners to get a glimpse into, or is it all hush hush at the moment? <laughs> no, no. I I think that uh, we have been trying to advocating uh, the effects of uh, MK7, MNAQ7, uh, as vitamin K2 for uh, both a decade now. And uh, I think that uh, more and more people are aware of the effects for bone mm. and for cardiovascular to, to prevent development of, uh, of disease condition here. So uh, in, the, in the horizon we now have is to really test out the effects in patients that can take advantage not only to inhibit development from the early point in life, but also to treat and uh, diseases and let people have a good life even if these diseases have developed. Yeah. And uh, and uh, in addition to that, we know there are very many new intriguing observations when you come to effects on the brain, the central nervous system, and uh, effects around the anti-inflammatory effects of the compounds. So we have a lot ah. more to do, and hopefully we can come up with new data in these areas also in the year to come. Wow. That would be very interesting to see how that pans out. I, I have to ask one last question before we go, Hogner, and that's um, yeah. a rather, one could call it remedial, but it's extremely frustrating for those who have them. That's soft tissue injuries like spurs. Can vitamin K2, MK7, can that act on taking the calcium out of that calcified tissue and, and re-dispersing um, it to other tissues? If this is the last question, I, I should really be happy to say, yes, it can. But here <laughs> I have to say, I hope it can. And let's see if we can help in the future. Because, <laughs> uh, like, yeah. you know, it might be a remedial type of medical level, if you like, but it's extremely frustrating for those people who have them. And it actually impacts on a wide uh, variety of uh, uh, activities of daily living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I really understand, and, and, and that is what we touched upon a little earlier, that uh, when you have uh, repairment of inflammatory processes, calcium seems to be a, a part of that, that you end up with this calcification in soft tissue, very many strange places. So uh, we haven't uh, run studies in this area, but uh, we gladly will participate, and if that can resolve the problem, I will be most happy about it. Wonderful. Hognavik, thank you. I should say, forgive me, Dr. Hognavik, thank you so much for joining us today on FX Medicine. I learned so much by talking to you um, and having you explain the many areas of MK7 uh, and where the research is pointing to, not just in the past to help with um, cardiovascular disease and bone, but some very interesting other areas of, as well. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for taking the time together with me. I've had a pleasant time. Thank you. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. 